My dear brethren, I greet you in love and gratitude for your faith and devotion. We have had a great day of conference. Great has been the music, inspirational have been the messages, including that of Elder Maxwell. I have asked Elder Maxwell to speak at my funeral, and I haven't any intention of leaving this world soon. <laughs> we are concluding a marvelous year of celebrating the struggles and heroism of the pioneers who arrived in Salt Lake Valley 150 years ago. We appreciate so much the hundreds of thousands of faithful Church members across the whole world who have contributed to this great commemoration. Significantly, all of these activities have been under the prophetic leadership of our inspired President Gordon B. Hinckley. Now he is directing us to become pioneers of the future with all of its exciting opportunities. Faith in every future footstep will fulfill prophetic vision concerning the glorious destiny of this Church. There has never been a more marvelous time in the history of this Church. More temples are under construction and being planned than ever before. An important first step in this future pioneering, President Hinckley has broken ground for a great new hall to be built close to the temple in Salt Lake City. From there, the word of the Lord in general conference will be spoken to more of God's children, both in the hall and by satellite and other electronic means. Tonight I speak with special emphasis to young, you young priesthood bearers who will take this church into the futures. You do not follow the ways of the world by engaging in unwholesome activities or wearing strange clothes and ornaments. We are proud of you. We have confidence in you. I take as my text the profound but simple message of the Savior to the ruler of the synagogue. You will recall that the ruler was told that his daughter was dead and that he should not trouble the master about it. When the Savior came into the house of this grieving father, he said, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And he took the girl by the hand and said, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked. And they were astonished with great astonishment. The Savior's words to the leader of the synagogue capture the essence of this story. Be not afraid, only believe. These five words comprise my message to you. We must believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. We must believe in the Atonement and the Resurrection of the Savior. We must believe in the words of the prophets, both ancient and modern. We should also believe in ourselves. Believing requires action. If you prepare to walk down the path of life, you can be rewarded beyond your dreams and expectations. But to achieve this, you must work very hard, save, be wise, and be alert. 
you must learn to deny yourselves of worldly gratification. You must be faithful in paying tithes. You must keep the word of wisdom. You must be free of other addictions. You must be chaste and morally clean in every respect. You should accept and be faithful in all the calls that come to you. Steadiness and toil will serve you better than brilliance. Action is inhibited by fear. You, young men, along with the young sisters, are the future of the Church and, in some measure, of the world. You rightly have concerns about measuring up and finding your place in life. You more often recognize your inadequacies rather than your strengths. Some of you have, may have concerns about leaving home and going into the unknown, such as the mission field. Some of you in your 20s and 30s are timid about taking on the responsibilities of marriage and family. You are properly concerned about your education, your training, to learn to use your minds and hands. You must acquire a skill to be able to compete in today's world. You have fears about being accepted. You worry about being popular in your age group. It is natural to want to belong. Recently I heard of a good man who, after being married in the temple and having four children, fell away from the church. His physical appearance became shabby and his demeanor sad as he became a drug addict, an alcoholic, and then a chain smoker. He continued in this destructive lifestyle for many years. However, in time, with the help of a good wife, home teachers, a caring bishop, and our loving Heavenly Father, he eventually started on the long road back. One of the proudest days in his life came when he once again qualified for a temple recommend. Looking back on those bad years, he later admitted, All I ever wanted was to belong. Seeking acceptance from the wrong source brought untold misery and pain. Please be assured, brethren, that we all belong. Nothing is more important or precious to any of us than belonging to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We belong to the greatest cause on the earth, that of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have been endowed with the greatest power on earth, that of the holy priesthood. If you take each challenge one step at a time, with faith in every footstep, your strength and understanding will increase. You cannot foresee all of the turns and twists ahead. My counsel to you is to follow the direction of the Savior of the world. Be not afraid, only believe. We are not alone in our mortal struggles, as the prophet Elisha teaches. Unseen hosts watch over us. In his day, Syria was at war against Israel, and the prophet Elisha counseled the king of Israel against entrapment. The king of Israel followed that counsel and saved himself again and again. This stirred up the king of Syria, who sent by night horses and chariots and a great host and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, and host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. 
And his servants said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Then the prophet answered, saying, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. With the help of the Lord, the prophet Elisha was able to save Israel. We can overcome all of our fears, not all at once, but one at a time. As we do so, we will grow in confidence. The following is the story of a young man who encountered a fear that each one of us has faced or will face sometime in our lives. It was a hot July afternoon, and the chapel was filled for a stake priesthood meeting. There was a young priest sitting on the stand in contained nervousness. And after the hymn, the stake president announced him as the next speaker. He spread out his notes, and as he did so, his quivering hands betrayed his fear. He began to speak, but soon his speech quickened to a gabble, his words wild and repetitive. Worse followed as he began to stammer and then stopped speaking altogether. A heavy silence settled on the room. Who has not felt the terror of standing before an awesome audience? Everyone thought he would sit down. But no, he stayed on his feet, his head down. Few ominous seconds ticked by, and then he squared his shoulders and blurted out, Brethren, I ask for an interest in your faith and prayers that I might have sureness of speech. Then he went back to where he had left off, speaking quietly but clearly. Soon his voice rose to its natural residence, and he delivered his message to its full conclusion. It was not so much his message that thrilled those who were there. It was the image of that young man, unflinching even though he felt himself teetering on the precipice precipice of fear, taking up the banner of courage and rallying himself for the cause of truth. Each of you has been endowed with unique talents and abilities. That coupled with some special powers of the priesthood will help you tremendously in any endeavor. It will be a great challenge to be in the royal army that takes the church into the future under the guidance of the Lord and his leaders. It will also be a most rewarding and exciting experience. It will require great faith, sacrifice, discipline, commitment, and effort. I have every confidence that you are equal to it. Believing includes faith and trust in the Savior and in the principles of the gospel. And it also includes having total confidence in the president of the church, the first presidency, the quorum of the twelve apostles, and other general authorities as the servants of the Lord. It also means believing that they receive inspiration to direct the affairs of the church. This belief was one of the strengths of the pioneers. Recounting the faith of that great band of early saints, Elder Benny Rich said, This country was unknown to them. They believed that God had given to President Young a vision of the future home for the Latter-day Saints. They had faith in their leader, and they were willing to go into the unknown with him. 
Who should ever forget the faith, the bravery of those who had such confidence in Brigham Young as to follow him into these valleys of the mountains? Close quote. As modern-day pioneers looking to the future, we must be willing to go into the unknown, having the same confidence and commitment in following President Hinckley and the other constituted authorities of the Church. Believing involves faith and good works. We cannot be passive. We must actively avoid evil. This means that we do not trifle with sacred things. Families in this day and time should not only avoid evil, but avoid the very appearance of evil. To combat these influences, families must have family prayer, family home evening, and family scripture study. How corrosive is the daily diet of pornography, immorality, dishonesty, disrespect, abuse, and violence that comes from so many sources? If we are not careful, it will shake our spiritual moorings. Once we internalize these evils, it is very difficult to purge ourselves of them. Elder Dallin H. Oaks gave white counsel on this subject while serving as president of Brigham Young University. He said, We are surrounded by promotional literature of illicit sexual relations on the printed page and on the screen. For your own good, avoid it. Pornographic or erotic stories and pictures are worse than filthy or polluted food. The body has defenses to rid itself of unwholesome food. With a few fatal exceptions, bad food will only make you sick, but do no permanent harm. In contrast, a person who feasts upon filthy stories and pornographic or erotic pictures and literature records them in this marvelous retrieval system we call a brain. The brain won't vomit back filth. Once recorded, it will always remain subject to recall, flashing its perverted images across your mind and drawing you away from the wholesome things of lives. Close quote. In some ways, we are the most challenged generation in history of the world. We seem to be living in a time foreseen by King Benjamin, said he. And finally, I cannot tell you all things whereby you may commit sin, for there are divers ways and means. Even so many, I cannot count them. Now comes this powerful warning. But this much I can tell you that if you do not watch yourselves, your thoughts, and your words, and your deeds, and observe the commandments of God, and continue in the faith of what you have heard concerning the coming of the Lord, even unto the end of your lives ye must perish. I would like to say a word to you, brethren, who are a little older. President J. Reuben Clark, Jr., a counselor in the First Presidency, used to say from this pulpit, Brethren, I hope I can remain faithful to the end. At that time, President Clark was in his 80s. As a young man, I could not understand how this wise, learned, experienced, righteous apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ could have any concern for his own spiritual well-being. As I approach his age, I now understand it. I have the same concern for myself. 
for my family and for all of my brethren of the priesthood. Over my lifetime, I have seen some of the most choice, capable, and righteous of men stumble and fall. They've been true and faithful for many years and then get caught in a web of stupidity and foolishness which has brought great shame to themselves and betrayed the trust of their innocent families, leaving their loved ones a legacy of sorrow and hurt. My dear brethren, all of us, young and old, must constantly guard against the enticements of Satan. These evil influences come to us like tidal waves. We must choose wisely the books and the magazines we read, the movies we see, and how we use modern technology such as the Internet. The great powers of the priesthood are beyond our understanding. They are everlasting. Through this power, the universe was set in order. I promise you, brethren, transcendent blessings as you live righteously. I say this without hesitation or equivocation, because of the promises from the Lord in the oath and the covenant of the priesthood found in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. For whoso is faithful unto the obtaining of these two priesthoods, of which I have spoken, and the magnifying their calling, are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron, the seed of Abraham, and the Church and Kingdom and elect of God. And also all they who receive this priesthood receive me, saith the Lord. For he that receiveth my servants receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth my Father, and he that receiveth my Father receiveth my Father's kingdom. Therefore all that my Father hath shall be given unto him. If we believe and are faithful, we are promised all that the Father has. If we receive all that the Father has, there is nothing more for us to receive in this life or the life to come. We should remember that in our challenges and struggles against the powers of evil and darkness, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. We belong to the greatest cause on earth. We are the pioneers of the future. Let us go forth like the armies of Helaman and build the kingdom of God. Like the royal army, let us be united, bold, and strong, marching forth to conquer on life's great battlefield. All of these hopes, blessings, and opportunities will come to us if we will only believe and be not afraid. Of this I testify, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The scriptures have recorded, and if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. The acquisition of knowledge is a fundamental part of the Lord's eternal plan for His children. To make certain that there are resources available for those who seek this knowledge, He has instructed His prophets through the ages to make a record of His dealings with them. 
the first earthly family, even the family of Father Adam, followed these instructions. And then began these men to call upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord blessed them. And a book of remembrance was kept, in the which was recorded in the language of Adam, for it was given unto as many as called upon God to write by the Spirit of inspiration. And by them their children were taught to read and write, having a knowledge which was pure and undefiled. Continuing our studies on through the Old and New Testament, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants, we find repeated instructions to study the gospel of our Lord and Savior. The Lord understands us perfectly. He knows that to be truly converted, we must understand how He deals with His children here on earth. Gaining a knowledge of Him is fundamental to our mortal training. We also need to have a thirst and a desire to become acquainted with the doctrines of the kingdom. President Spencer W. Kimball gave us some instructions about the knowledge we should seek and in what sequence. Using Peter and John as an example, he taught, Peter and John had little secular learning, being termed ignorant, but they were taught the vital things of life, that God lives, and that the crucified, resurrected Lord is the Son of God. They knew the path to eternal life. This they learned in a few decades of their mortal life. Their righteous lives opened the door to Godhood for them and creation of worlds with eternal increase. For this they would probably need eventually the total knowledge of the sciences. But whereas Peter and John had only decades to learn and do the spiritual, they have already had nineteen centuries in which to learn the secular or the geology of the earth, the zoology, the physiology, or the psychology of the creatures of the earth. Mortality is a time to first learn of God and the gospel and to perform the ordinances. After our feet are firmly set on the path to eternal life, we can amass the knowledge of secular things. Given this instruction from a prophet of God, I want to talk to you great young people of the Church who have so much of your life ahead of you. The Church has recognized from the very beginning the need for you to have an opportunity to gain the most fundamental knowledge you need in order to obtain life eternal. During the early history of the Church, Elementary and secondary schools were established. A university was opened in the Nauvoo period. Three years after the Saints arrived in Utah, the University of Deseret was opened. As the increased number of LDS youth attending public secondary schools, it became apparent to Church leaders that there was a need to provide religious curriculum to complement their regular secular studies. In 1912, the Church began building seminaries on Church-owned properties adjacent to public high schools where students could take daily classes in religion. 
We learn of the dedication which was given to the seminary program in its very beginning by reading from a diary of John M. Whitaker, one of the early instructors of the seminary program. In April of 1915, he was employed as an instructor in the Granite Seminary with a salary of $1,500 per year. He found little to work with as he assumed his new position. His diary records, I had to start without the least scratch or outline, and I thought out many approaches to the new problem before me. I had taught several years at the University of Deseret, but there I knew my course well. But to commence a course now, heretofore, where the Bible alone had been the guide, and to meet the need of the hour when students of the age coming into high school and junior work with strict outlines and supervision with everything before them, and now coming from the discipline of high school requirements into a religion class where they could attend if they desired or remain away, but to take religion which was frowned upon during the weekdays only for Sundays was a task too great for me to undertake alone. So I did as I have always done when presented with a task. I went humbly and prayed to my Father in the heaven, and in simplicity told him of my problem and asked for inspiration, guidance, wisdom, and courage for the task before me. I was unknown to most of the faculty and students of Granite High. So during the summer, I thought out how I could best make a beginning. He became an enthusiastic about the beginning of the year in teaching Granite High School and looked forward to the registration day on September 3rd of 1915. A crowd of students was on hand, and his journal entry describes the event. Commencing a very important period of my life, and one that will, I am sure, affect the destiny of thousands of the youth of Zion if the plans mature in my mind blossom into fruition. His diary records events step by step, which led to the tremendous success he had in carrying forward this program over the years. Significant is the statement of the late S. Dilworth Young, one of the Seventy, who was one of Brother Whitaker's earliest seminary students. Had Elder A. Theodore Tuttle been clairvoyant, he would have seen in the year of 1914 a fourteen-and-a-half-year-old stripling entering the first seminary instituted by the Church. Across the street from Granite High School, a building had been constructed, one room in size, a teacher employed, and the school open to the students. I was that stripling. There died yesterday the third teacher of that particular seminary. His name was John M. Whitaker. I would like to make a short tribute to Brother Whitaker. He likely did not know the profound influence he had upon me as a boy. As I studied minutely under him and under Guy C. Wilson before him, the details of the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants. I look back upon it now, 
realizing that that was where I got my first detailed knowledge of the standard works. Could I have enough influence, I would see to it that every boy and every girl in the Church had a like experience under a man of faith. The service of John M. Whittaker is an example of thousands of instruction, instructors who have, over the years, devoted their lives to building testimonies in hundreds of thousands of young people who have availed themselves of the opportunity of taking advantage of seminary classes. To facilitate religious training of students attending non-LDS colleges and universities, the Church established institutes of religion adjacent to college campuses beginning in 1926. The success of the seminary and institutes resulted in the spread of these programs into many, many parts of the world. The Church periodically checks the pulse and measures the progress of the institute programs. This last year, an institute study revealed the following. Those graduating from institute, 96 percent received their temple endowments. Ninety-eight percent of those receiving their endowments had their marriages performed in the temple. Ninety-six percent of the men graduating from institute served missions. We have testimonies from seminary students throughout the world. Listen to a page from a diary coming from Russia. Today is the happiest morning in this year. Today is the first morning seminary day. How and when originates this thought about daily morning seminary? I remember there was a lesson from one of our CES teachers that mentioned about the daily seminary program in the United States and Europe. I got stuck in my mind. At that lesson, I felt the power of the Holy Ghost, which brought a thought unto me that we should have seminary here. Then I felt that the Lord endows everything for His job, possibly strength and help. We have to have just willingness to accept a gift. After that meeting, I felt great inspiration. Some mothers got a little frightened of the idea because their children would have to get up early in the morning, and in school they are overloaded. And some finish school this year and will be entering higher educational institutions. But fathers who have the priesthood completely supported me, having said that daily study of the scriptures is so needed for our youth, will teach them discipline, and will also help them gain the Holy Ghost which during the daytime and school lessons will help them withstand the temptations of Satan. This testimony and so many others we have received from the four corners of the earth helps us to catch the spirit of these two great programs. They offer you, young people, a special paved road that will lead you to life eternal, which is the greatest gift God has given to His children. President Gordon B. Hinckley has said this about our seminary and institute programs. Take advantage of every opportunity to enlarge your understanding of the gospel. Make the effort to participate in seminary and institute programs. 
Our great program of Church education moves forward. The work of training students through the seminary and institute programs is constantly being enlarged. We urge all for whom it is available to take advantage of it. We do not hesitate to promise that your knowledge of the gospel will increase, your faith will be strengthened, and you will develop wonderful associations and friendships. I would like to add my testimony to that of our great prophet leader. I know the power that comes from association in seminary and the institute programs. It has enriched my life, and I know it will do the same for you. It will put a shield and protection around you to keep you free from the temptations and trials of the world. There is a great blessing in having a knowledge of the gospel, and I know of no better place for the young people of the Church to gain a special knowledge of sacred things than in the institute and seminary programs of the Church. Many years ago I was, had the privilege of teaching early morning seminary. The class was held between 6.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m. each school day. For two years I watched sleepy students stumble into class, challenging their instructor to wake them up. After prayer was offered and an inspirational thought given, I watched bright minds come alive to increase their knowledge of the scripture. The most difficult part of the class was to terminate the discussion in time for them to send them on to their regular high school classes. As the school year progressed, I watched each student gain greater confidence, closer friendships, and a growing testimony of the gospel. A few years ago I was in a grocery store in a city not far from here. I heard someone call out my name. I turned to greet two of my former seminary students. They were now husband and wife. They introduced me to their four beautiful children. As I visited, I was amazed with the number of seminary classmates they still had contact with after all these years. It was an evidence of a special bonding that had occurred in that very early morning seminary class. As we parted, a scripture came into my mind. I call you friends, and you are my friends, and ye shall have an inheritance with me. There is a special strength we gain from associations with each other, especially in gospel settings. Plan on completing full four years of seminary. You know the Institute is available for all students and non-students between the ages of 18 and 30. Are you enrolled? If not, I invite you to take advantage of this wonderful opportunity. And to you who are enrolled, study diligently to learn the gospel. I promise you that the foundation you receive in these two great programs will bless you throughout your lives. This is my witness to you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brothers and sisters and friends, 
I have prayed earnestly that you might understand my words this morning in the spirit which is intended. I therefore seek your faith and prayers in my behalf. Jesus of Nazareth described his ultimate work. This is my work and glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. His work is accomplished through the gospel, which carries the impress of the Savior himself. I humbly wish to speak of the essence of the gospel. The Savior taught that judgment, mercy, and faith are the weightier matters of the law. I wish to state unequivocally that the commandments of God must be kept to receive the blessings and promises of the Savior. The Ten Commandments are still a vital thread in the fabric of the gospel of Christ. But with his coming came new light and life, which brings a full measure of joy and happiness. Jesus introduced a higher and more difficult standard of human conduct. It is simpler as well as more difficult because it focuses on internal rather than external requirements. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Love your neighbors yourself. When smitten, turn the other cheek. When asked for a coat, give your cloak also. Forgive, not just once, but seventy times seven. This was the essence of the new gospel. There was more emphasis on do than do not. Moral agency was given to each of us. Joseph Smith, the prophet with the dispensation of the fullness of times, established the Church by revelation as the receptacle of gospel truth. He brought more light, warmth, and joy into the Church through the numerous lofty revelations, such as how the priesthood should be exercised. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, and by love and faint. This high standard of conduct, if lived, will bring to fruition a promise men are that they might have joy. Over the centuries, dogmatism, coercion, and intolerance have too often polluted the living water of the gospel, which quenches our spiritual thirst eternally. The Savior observed this in his day. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier manners of the law judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Similarly, Paul said, The letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. We are not only to avoid evil, not only to do good, but most importantly, to, those, to do those things of greatest worth. We are to focus on the inward things of the heart, which we know and value intuitively, but often neglect 
for that which is trivial, superficial, or prideful. The saving principles and doctrines of the Church are established, fixed, and unchangeable. Obedience to these absolutes is necessary to enjoy peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. However, the manner in which the Church administers complex and varied worldwide challenges changes from time to time. Under the guidance of living prophets, new guidelines and procedures are put in place. I welcome these inspired changes. They are proof of the truthfulness of the restored gospel. I have some fear, however, that some members consider guidelines and procedures to be as important as the timeless, immutable laws of the gospel, such as, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Rather than some legalistic definition of adultery, the Savior's more enlightened direction is that the thought is father to the deed. He that looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. Who decides what is right and wrong in given circumstances? Where does the responsibility for the making of moral judgments rest? With mature individuals, of course, it rests with each individual. In the case of children, the responsibility of giving moral guidance rests with the parents. They know the disposition, understanding, and intelligence of each child. Parents spend a lifetime seeking to establish and maintain good communications with each of their children. They are in the best position to make the ultimate moral decisions as to the welfare and well-being of their offspring. The higher principles of the gospel—justice, mercy, and faith—are very important in all family relationships. Many years ago, when I was a bishop, a conscientious father came to me for counsel. He felt that the many and frequent activities of the Church made it difficult to have as much family togetherness as he and his family deemed necessary. The children had the idea that they were not loyal to the Church if they did not participate fully in every recreational activity. I told this caring father that Church activities were to help him and his wife rear their children. They, as parents, had not only the right but the duty to determine the extent of their family's involvement in social activities. Family unity, solidarity, and harmony should be preserved. After all, a family is the basic permanent use unit of the Church. There are three sources of guidance for making moral judgments. The first is the guidance of the Holy Ghost. This is always a sure compass for those who have been baptized and received this supernal gift. The second source is the wise counsel of priesthood leaders, whom the Lord has put in place to guide us. Third, the constant demonstration of love should temper all our judgments. Sometimes this means discipline. The Prophet Joseph Smith was once asked how he governed so diverse a people. His answer was, I teach them correct principles, and they govern themselves. 
This statement is just as true today as it was in Joseph's time. There must be listening ears and obedience to the living prophet of the Church. President Marion G. Romney stated it well, and I quote, It is an easy thing to believe in dead prophets, but it is a greater thing to believe in the living prophets. I will give you an illustration. One day when President Grant was living, I sat in my office across the street following a general conference. A man came over to see me, an elderly man. He was very upset about what had been said in this conference by some of the brethren, including myself. I could tell from his speech that he came from a foreign land. After I had quieted him enough so that he would listen, I said, Why did you come to America? I came here because a prophet of God told me to come. Who is that prophet, I continued? Wilfred Woodruff. Do you believe that Wilfred Woodruff was a prophet of God? Yes, he said. Do you believe that his successor, Lorenzo, President Lorenzo Snow, was a prophet of God? Yes, I do. Do you believe that Joseph F. Smith was a prophet of God? Yes, sir. Then came the $64 question. Do you believe that Heber J. Grant is a prophet of God? His answer, I think he ought to keep his mouth shut about old age assistance. <laughs> Today we have a living prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, whom we sustain as a prophet of our day. He has warned us to speak up for moral standards in a world where filth, sleaze, pornography, and their whole evil brood are sweeping over us as a flood. His counsel to us in our day is, Stand up for integrity in your business, in your profession, in your home, in the society of which you are part. Indeed, moral standards must be maintained. In large measure, those who are disobedient punish themselves. As the Lord said to Jeremiah, Thine own wickedness, through Jeremiah, thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Those entrusted with the judicial responsibility in the kingdom of God must see that the Church remains clean so that the living waters of life flow unimpeded. However, true religion is not looking primarily for weaknesses, faults, and errors. It is the spirit of strengthening and overlooking faults, even as we would wish our own faults to be overlooked. When we focus our entire attention on what may be wrong rather than what is right, we miss the sublime beauty and essence of the sweet gospel of the Master. Judgment, the weightier matter of the law mentioned by the Savior, cannot be separated from the other two, mercy and faith. Shakespeare wrote of the quality of mercy. Speaking through Portia, he said, We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I am frank to admit that when I say my prayers, I do not ask for justice, I ask for mercy. 
One of the great examples of mercy in our time was extended by the Prophet Joseph to W.W. W. Phelps during the trouble of the saints in the state of Missouri. Elder Phelps fell into apostasy after suffering buffetings on June 29, 1840, while in Dayton, Ohio, W.W. W. Phelps wrote to the Prophet Joseph, I have seen the folly of my way, and I tremble at the gulf I have passed. I will repent and live, and ask my old brethren to forgive me. And though they chasten me to death, yet I will die with them, for their God is my God. The least place with them is enough for me. Yea, it is bigger and better than all of Babylon. I have done wrong, and I am sorry. I have not walked along with my friends according to my holy anointing. I ask forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ of all the saints, for I will do right, God helping me. I want your fellowship. If you cannot grant that, grant me your peace and friendship, for we are brethren. And our communion used to be sweet. To this the Prophet Joseph replied, It is true that we have suffered much in consequence of your behavior. The cup of gall, already full enough, was indeed filled to overflowing when you turned against us. One with whom we had oft taken sweet counsel together and enjoyed many refreshing seasons from the Lord. Had it been an enemy, we could have borne it. However, the cup has been drunk, the will of our Father has been done, and we are yet alive. And having been delivered from the hands of wicked men by the mercy of our God, we say it is your privilege to be delivered from the powers of the adversary and take again your stand among the saints of the Most High and by diligence, humility, love and faith, commend yourself to our God and your God and to the Church of Jesus Christ, believing your confession to be real and your repentance genuine. I will be happy once again to give you the right hand of fellowship and rejoice over the returning prodigal. Come on, dear brother. Since the war is past, for friends at first are friends again at last. Yours as ever, Joseph Smith, Jr. W. W. Phelps remained true and faithful and wrote the words to the marvelous hymn, Praise to the Man, affirming his great love and admiration for the prophet Joseph. Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Jesus anointed that prophet and seer, blessed to open the last dispensation. Kings shall extol him, and nations revere. The childlike faith of a follower of the divine Christ is a choice spiritual gift. It can be enjoyed by young and old. In the early days of the Church, a young boy by the name of Will Clough, ten years of age, living in Nauvoo, had a remarkable, pure faith. 
He had an experience to which many of us can relate. His family was poor and had only one cow, which they depended on for food. In the spring of 1842, the cow strayed off. One evening in August, his father came home very weary and discouraged. He and Will's brothers had spent much of the summer looking for the cow. Will said, Father, if you let me take Charlie, an old horse, I will go and find the cow. He reluctantly said he could. The next morning, Will rode to the big mound three miles east and in the prairie country. Here he had often herded cows with other boys from Nauvoo. He got off the horse and, holding it by the bridle, knelt down and fervently prayed the Lord to direct him which way to go to find the cow. He climbed back on the horse and rode south, a course he was impressed to take, even though there were numerous bunches of cattle in every direction. After traveling a few miles in the open prairie and passing hundreds of cattle, Will came to a fence. He dismounted and let down the stake, led his horse in, put up the fence, and then rode three miles across the field. He again found himself in the open prairie with numerous bunches of stock in every direction. When he had gone about a quarter of a mile from the field, he rode right on to the cow, feeding alone some distance from any other animals. Will started to drive the cow in the direction of the city. He arrived late in the evening, full of joy and thankful to his Father in heaven. I fear that some of our greatest sins are sins of omission. These are some of the weightier matters of the law. The Savior said we should not leave undone. These are the thoughtful, caring deeds we fail to do and feel so guilty for having neglected them. As a small boy on the farm, During the searing heat of the summer, I remember my grandmother Mary Finlinson cooking our delicious meals on a hot wood stove. When the wood box next to the empty stove became empty, grandmother would silently pick up the box and go out to refill it from the pile of cedar wood outside and bring the heavily laden box back into the house. I was so insensitive and interested in the conversation in the kitchen, I sat there. And let my beloved grandmother refill the kitchen wood box. I feel ashamed of myself and have regretted my mission. For all of my life, I hope someday to ask for her forgiveness. 
we are directed into the pathway to the kingdom of God by the Savior's own words, said he. The kingdom of God is nigh unto you. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are shown the way into the kingdom of God on earth. In the same way, those who extend judgment, mercy, and faith, and forgiveness exhibit a greatness of soul and mind consistent with the spirit of the Lord's teachings and example. This higher gospel requires that we look inward to our own souls, for we cannot deceive the Lord. We are told that the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. Those of us who hold the holy apostleships always wish to fulfill our responsibility by testifying to the divinity of the Savior. I feel compelled to do so. I have had a testimony all of my life. Recently, however, there has come into my soul an overpowering witness of the divinity of this holy work. This sure witness is more certain than ever before in my life. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We've just heard President Thomas S. Monson, first counselor in the First Presidency. <clears throat> we remind you, brethren, that the CBS Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be from 9.30 to 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Sunday morning session will immediately follow the broadcast. As you leave this priesthood meeting tonight, we ask you to obey traffic rules, to use caution, and to be courteous in driving. We express gratitude to the men of the Tabernacle Choir and the Mormon Youth Chorus for the music given us this evening. Following my remarks, the choir will conclude by singing, I Need Thee Every Hour. <clears throat> the benediction will be offered by Elder Donald L. Stapley of the Seventy. Now, brethren, it becomes my privilege to speak to you, and I... I'll repeat some things that have been said during this conference with the hope of giving emphasis to them. This has been a wonderful meeting, and if the counsel we have received is heeded, we should all be the better for it. Somebody in the media got the idea that we were going to make a great strategic announcement tonight. I don't know what it'll be. Unless it's a matter that I'll mention here, it'll, be, it'll have great influence through the years to come. I believe that no member of the Church has received the ultimate which this Church has to give until he or she has received his or her temple blessings in the house of the Lord. Accordingly, we are doing all that we know how to do to expedite the construction of these sacred buildings and make the blessings received therein more generally available. With the dedication of the St. Louis Temple last June, 
We have 50 working temples. We will soon dedicate the Vernal Temple in Utah. The next dedication is scheduled for June of 1998 in Preston, England. I am pleased to report that the temples in Colombia, Ecuador, the Dominican Republic, Bolivia, Spain, Recife, and Campinas, Brazil, Mexico, Boston, New York, and Albuquerque are all moving forward, either in planning or in various stages of construction. Our previously announced plan to construct a temple in Venezuela is also going forward, and we are hopeful of acquiring a site in the very near future. We continue to work on permits of various kinds against some opposition for temples in Billings, Montana and Nashville, Tennessee. I'm now pleased to announce our intent to build temples in Houston, Texas and in Porto Alegre, Brazil. All of this speaks of our great interest in vigorously moving forward this important work. Altogether, I think we have about 17 in some course of construction, and that's a prodigious undertaking. But there are many areas of the Church that are remote, where the membership is small and not likely to grow very much in the near future. Are those who live in these places to be denied forever the blessings of the temple ordinances? While visiting such an area a few months ago, we prayerfully pondered this question. The answer, we believe, came bright and clear. We would construct small temples in some of these areas, buildings with all of the facilities to administer all of the ordinances. They would be built to temple standards, which are much higher than meeting house standards. They would accommodate baptisms for the dead, the endowment service, ceilings, and all other ordinances to be had in the Lord's house for both the living and the dead. They would be presided over, wherever possible, by local men called as temple presidents, just as stake presidents are called. They would have an indefinite period of appointment. They would live in the area in their own homes. One counselor would serve as temple recorder, the other as temple engineer. All ordinance workers would be local people who would serve in other capacities in their wards and stakes. Patrons would be expected to have their own temple clothing, thereby making unnecessary the construction of very costly laundries. A simple laundry would take care of baptismal clothing. There would be no eating facilities. These structures would be open according to need maybe only one or two days a week. That would be left to the judgment of the temple president. Where possible, we would place such a building on the same grounds as the stake center, using the same parking lot for both facilities, thereby affecting a great saving. One of these small temples can be constructed for about the same cost it takes just to maintain a large temple for a single year. It could be constructed in a relatively short time, several months. I repeat that none of the essentials would be missing. Every ordinance performed in the house of the Lord would be available. These small buildings would have at least half the capacity of some of our much larger temples. 
They could be expanded when needed. Now, as you hear me say these things, I think state presidents in many areas will say this is exactly what we need. Well, let us know of your needs, and we'll give them prayerful and careful consideration. But please don't expect things to happen all at once. We need a little experience for this undertaking. The operation of such temples will require some measure of sacrifice on the part of our faithful local saints whom they serve. They not only will serve as ordinance workers, it will be expected that they will clean the buildings and take care of them. But the burden will not be heavy. In view of the blessing, it will be light indeed. There will be no paid employees. All of the work of operation will represent faith and devotion and dedication. We are planning such structures immediately in Anchorage, Alaska, in the LDS colonies in northern Mexico, and in Monticello, Utah. In areas of greater Church membership, we will build more of the traditional temples, but we are developing plans that will reduce the cost without any reduction in terms of the work to be performed therein. We are determined, brethren, to take the temples to the people and afford them every opportunity for the very precious blessings that come of temple worship. Now, so much for that matter. What I say next, you've heard me say before, and you've, others, you've heard others speak of it. I hope we keep talking about it and then doing something about it. I do so because I am so concerned with it. With the increase of missionary work throughout the world, there must be a comparable increase in the effort to make every convert feel at home in his or her ward or branch. Enough people will come into the Church this year to constitute more than a hundred new average-sized stakes. Unfortunately, with this acceleration in conversions, we are neglecting some of these new members. I am hopeful that a great effort will go forward throughout the Church, throughout the world, to retain every convert who comes into the Church. This is serious business. There is no point in doing missionary work unless we hold on to the fruits of that effort. The two must be inseparable. I should like to read you a letter. It is of a kind that we occasionally receive. A man writes, I feel compelled to write to you after reading your comments from the April General Conference. I'm glad to hear he's still reading them. I was especially moved by your comments on converts and young men. I was reading the article on the Internet. I had no idea it was there and was touched by your words. Your perception of converts and their special needs was especially moving to me since I was a convert to the Church. I wanted to write to you and tell you that I agree with all of your statements, and that had more members been aware of the needs of a convert, I would probably have stayed in the Church. I was converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1994. This was after a long period of time in which I was searching for the true Church. I had explored just about every denomination and Church, but never found what I was looking for. 
From my first contact with the missionaries, I knew that they were presenting something to me that would change my life. I listened to what they had to say, and I heard what I was looking for all those years. I don't know if there are words to describe how I felt after hearing their message. I was finally at peace. It all made sense. I earnestly studied the Church and felt as if I had found a home. I decided to be baptized on October 8, 1994. It was one of the greatest days of my life. However, after my baptism, things with the Church changed. I suddenly was thrown into an environment where I was supposed to know what was going on. I was not the, now not the focus of attention, but just another member. I was treated as if I was in the Church for years. I had been told that there would be six discussions following my joining the Church. They never took place. At the same time, I was feeling intense pressure for my fiancée to not be in the Church. She was extremely anti-Mormon in her beliefs and didn't want me to be a part of it. We fought often about the Church. I thought that I could make her see my side of the story. I thought that if I just had more time to participate in the Church, she wouldn't think of it as a bad thing or as a cult. I thought that she would see from my example that this was the true Church and she would come to accept it. I used the missionaries for a lot of support. They helped to think of ways to convince my fiancé that I had made the right decision. That worked until the missionaries were transferred. They moved away, and I was basically left alone. At least that is how I thought. I looked to the members for support, but there was none. The bishop helped, but he could only do so much. I gradually lost my warm, fuzzy feeling about the Church. I felt like a stranger. I began to doubt the Church and its message. Eventually, I started to listen more to my fiancé. Then I made a decision that maybe I had rushed into the Church too quickly. I wrote my bishop and asked that my name be removed from the Church records. I allowed this to be done. That was a low point in my life. Now it's two years since I left the Church. I have gone back to my old Church and haven't been involved with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints since then. I am constantly praying and asking God to guide me. I know in my heart that He will guide me to His true Church. However, I don't know if that is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or if it even exists at all. I regret that I left the Church and had my name removed from the records, but at the time I felt there was no other option. The experience left a bad impression with me, and it would be difficult to overcome. As the Church prepares to implement a program for the retention of new converts, I wanted you to know that I think a lot of new converts may have similar experiences to mine. I know that there are people who are joining the Church against the advice 
of friends and family. This is a big step for them, and they should be supported at this critical time. I know from my past that had the support been there, I would not be writing this letter to you. Thank you for your time. And he signs the letter. What a tragedy. What a terrible tragedy. I believe the writer still has a testimony of this work. That testimony has been with him since the time he was baptized, but he's felt neglected and of no consequence to anyone. Someone has failed, failed miserably. I say to bishops throughout the world, that with all you have to do, and we recognize that it is much, you cannot disregard the converts. Most of them do not need very much. As I've said before, they need a friend. They need something to do, a responsibility. They need nurturing with the good word of God. They come into the Church with enthusiasm for what they've found. We must immediately build on that enthusiasm. You have people in your wards who can be friends to every convert. They can listen to them, guide them, answer their questions, and be there to help in all circumstances and in all conditions. Brethren, this loss must stop. It is unnecessary. I am satisfied the Lord is not pleased with us. I invite you, every one of you, to make this a matter of priority in your administrative work. I invite every member to reach out in friendship and love for those who come into the Church as converts. You will hear much about this in the months to come. I mention it now only to give my wholehearted endorsement. Permit me now to speak of another matter. I wish to speak of every boy who is listening tonight, and I express appreciation for what the other brethren have said to them. First, let me say that we honor and respect you young men. You represent a marvelous generation in this Church. I have said again and again that I believe this is the best generation we have ever had. You and the young women are tremendous. You study the scriptures. You pray. You attend seminary and sacrifice to yourselves. You try to do the right thing. You have testimonies of this work, and most of you live accordingly. I compliment you most generously. I express to you our great love for you. I wish only to say one or two things, adding to the things I have previously said, which I hope will be encouraging as you go forward with your lives. I could wish for you nothing better than to see in your lives total loyalty to the Church, total faith in its divine mission, total love for the work of the Lord with a desire to move it forward, and total dedication in performing your duties as members of the Aaronic Priesthood. You live in a world of terrible temptations. Pornography with its sleazy filth sweeps over the earth like a horrible engulfing tide. It is poison. Do not watch it or read it. It will destroy you if you do. It will take from you your self-respect. 
It will rob you of a sense of the beauties of life. It will tear you down and pull you into a slew of evil thoughts and possibly of evil actions. Stay away from it. Shun it as you would a foul disease, for it is just as deadly. Be virtuous in thought and in deed. God has planted in you for a purpose, a divine urge which may be easily subverted to evil and destructive ends. When you are young, do not get involved in steady dating. When you reach an age where you think of marriage, then is the time to become so involved. But you boys who are in high school don't need this, and neither do the girls. We receive letters. We constantly deal with people who, under the pressures of life, marry while very young. There is an old saying, marry in haste, repent at leisure. How true that is. Have a wonderful time with the young women. Do things together, but do not get too serious too soon. You have missions ahead of you, and you cannot afford to compromise this great opportunity and responsibility. The Lord has said, Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Stay away from alcohol. Graduation from high school is no reason for a beer bust. Better stay away and be thought a prude than go through life regretting it ever afterwards. Stay away from drugs. You cannot afford to touch them. They will utterly destroy you. The euphoria will quickly pass, and the deadly, strangling clutches of this evil thing will embrace you in its power. You will become a slave, a debauched slave. You will lose control of your life and your actions. Do not experiment with them. Stay free of them. Walk in the sunlight, strength, and virtue of self-control and of absolute integrity. Get all the schooling you can. Education is the key that unlocks the door of opportunity. God has placed upon this people a mandate to acquire knowledge even by study and also by faith. You are a peculiar people. Of course you are. You have bypassed the things of the world. You are on your way to something higher and better. You have education to be obtained. You have marriage before you as a great and sacred opportunity in the house of the Lord. You have missions to perform. Each of you should plan for missionary service. You may have some doubts. You may have some fears. Face your doubts and your fears with faith. Prepare yourselves to go. You have not only the opportunity, you have the responsibility. The Lord has blessed and favored you in a remarkable and wonderful way. Is it too much to ask that you give two years totally immersed in His service? My young brethren, you are something special. You must rise above the ordinary. You must put on the whole armor of God and walk with virtue. You know what is right. You know what is wrong. You know when and how to make the choice. You know that there is a power in heaven on which you can call in time, in your time of extremity and need. Pray with fervency and with faith. Pray to the God of heaven whom you love and who loves you. Pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his very life for you 
stand up and walk as becomes the sons of God. We love you. We pray for you. We count on you so very, very much. May you be watched over and safeguarded and blessed of the Lord. Now I wish to say something to bishops and state presidents concerning missionary service. It is a sensitive matter. There seems to be growing in the Church an idea that all young women as well as all young men should go on missions. We need some young men, they perf- women. They perform a remarkable work. They can get in homes where the elders cannot. I confess that I have two granddaughters on missions. They are bright and beautiful young women. They are working hard and accomplishing much good. Speaking with their bishops and their parents, they made their own decisions to go. They did not tell me until they turned their papers in. I had nothing to do with their decision to go. Now, having made that confession, I wish to say that the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve are united in saying to our young sisters that they are not under obligation to go on missions. I hope I can say what I have to say in a way that will not be offensive to anyone. Young women should not feel that they have a duty comparable to that of young men. Some of them will very much wish to go. If so, they should counsel with their bishop as well as their parents. If the idea persists, the bishop will know what to do. I say what has been said before that missionary work is essentially a priesthood responsibility. As such, our young men must carry the major burden. This is their responsibility and their obligation. We do not ask the young women to consider a mission as an essential part of their life's program. Over a period of many years, we have held the age level higher for them in an effort to keep the number going relatively small. Again to the sisters, I say that you will be as highly respected. You will be considered as being much in the li- as much in the line of duty. Your efforts will be as acceptable to the Lord and to the Church whether you go on a mission or do not go on a mission. We constantly receive letters from young women asking why the age for sister missionaries is not the same as it is for elders. We simply give them the reasons. We know that they are disappointed. We know that many have set their hearts on missions. We know that many of them wish this experience before they marry and go forward with their adult lives. I certainly do not wish to say or imply that their services are not wanted. I simply say that a mission is not necessary as a part of their lives. Now, that may appear to be something of a strange thing to say in priesthood meeting. I say it here because I do not know where else to say it. (laughs) The bishops and state presidents of the Church have heard it, and they must be the ones who make the judgment in this matter. That is enough on that subject. Now, in closing, I simply want to express my love for each of you. You men and boys provide the leadership for this great organization which is moving across the world in a marvelous and miraculous manner. 
I have not the slightest concern about the future. This church has become a great builder of leaders. One sees them everywhere. Converts of only a few years are serving as bishops and state presidents and in other capacities. What a wonderful thing you are doing, my brethren. Husbands, live the gospel. Be kind to your wives. You cannot serve acceptably in the church if there is conflict at home. Fathers, be kind to your children. Be companionable with them. As hard as you may labor in gathering the necessities of the world, no asset you will ever have will compare with the love and loyalty of the woman with whom you joined hands over the altar in the temple and the affection and respect of your children. May each of you be blessed in your vocational pursuits, whatever they may be, so long as they are honorable. May you look upon the Church as your great and good friend, your refuge when the world appears to be closing around you, your hope when things are dark, your pillar of fire by night, and your cloud by day as you thread the pathways of your lives. May the Lord be mindful of you and merciful and kind to you. May you find great joy in that which you do in His service is my humble prayer with an expression of love and affection for each of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. This has been a conference session marked by spirituality, and I know that you as I have been edified and uplifted. The statement has been made, where the President is, there is strength. And to know that he is with us and is presiding is the strength to the entire Church. President Hinckley programmed an energy-consuming regimen during the past year and has borne his witness to vast thousands of members and others throughout the nations of the world. For many, the experience was one never before enjoyed by devoted members in faraway places with strange-sounding names. He always appreciates our prayers in his behalf. In addition to so many other duties, the President of the Church receives a great deal of correspondence each day. I am reminded of one such letter and share it with you. I have changed the name of the young man who wrote the letter. He was 11. It begins, Dear President, Hi. My name is David Smith. I live in an area where the starlings are very bad, and they are making nests in my grandpa's boat and in my dad's barn and all over the place. My grandpa and my dad both think I should shoot them, but my mom doesn't. I know the law says it is okay, but I'm not asking your opinion, President, as a hunter. I'm asking your opinion as a Church leader. Sincerely, David Smith. P.S. A starling is a black bird <laughs> that eats other birds' eggs and other bad things. Then he had his address and phone number. 
Each letter which comes is answered. A response to this particular letter was sent by the secretary to the first presidency, F. Michael Watson. It read, Dear David, I have been asked to acknowledge your letter of April 30, addressed to the President of the Church, about the problems you've been having with starlings. Now catch this. The Church does not have an official policy on this matter. <laughs> the Brethren feel it should be left up to your parents to give you appropriate guidance. I hope this information is helpful to you. Sincerely yours, F. Michael Watson. President Hinckley cannot possibly answer every letter personally, nor can he be everywhere. Neither can those of us who assist him reach each member in every nation. However, the wisdom of the Lord provided us guidelines whereby we who hold the priesthood of God can serve, can teach, can testify to the families of the Church. Yes, I speak of home teaching. Let us review the counsel of the Lord and His prophets concerning this vital endeavor. The bishop of each ward in the Church assigns priesthood holders as home teachers to visit the homes of members every month. They go in pairs. Often a youth holding the Aaronic priesthood accompanies an adult leader holding the Melchizedek priesthood. The home teaching program is a response to modern revelation, commissioning those ordained to the priesthood to, quote, teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and watch over the Church and visit the house of each member and exhort them to pray vocally and in secret and attend to all family duties, to watch over the Church always and be with and strengthen them, and see that there is no iniquity in the Church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, backbiting, nor evil speaking. President David O. McKay admonished, Home teaching is one of our most urgent and most rewarding opportunities to nurture and inspire, to counsel and direct our Father's children. It is a divine service, a divine call. It is our duty as home teachers to carry the divine spirit into every home and heart, to love the work and do our best will bring unbounded peace, joy, and satisfaction to a noble, dedicated teacher of God's children." Close quote. From the Book of Mormon, Alma consecrated all their priests and all their teachers, and none were consecrated except they were just men. Therefore they did watch over their people and did nourish them with things pertaining to righteousness. In performing our home teaching responsibilities, we are wise if we learn and understand the challenges of the members of each family. A home teaching visit is also more likely to be successful if an appointment is made in advance. For example, the late John R. Burt 
with whom I served for many years in ward and state positions, told of an experience when, as a boy, he went home teaching with a devout and very outspoken high priest, without warning, and visited a less active family. They had come at a bad time. A poker game was underway in a smoke-filled living room. And as the two home teachers viewed the room, the high priest's senior companion turned to young Brother Bert and said, This congregation needs repentance. Please lead us in singing a hymn. Instead, Brother Bert said, I think we'd best leave and come back another night, which they did. Some years ago, when the Missionary Executive Committee was comprised of Spencer W. Kimball, Gordon B. Hinckley, and Thomas S. Monson, Brother and Sister Hinckley hosted a dinner for the committee members and our wives. We had just finished a lovely dinner in the beautiful home which Brother Hinckley constructed and on which he did most of the actual work, when suddenly there was a knock at the door. President Hinckley opened the door and noted his home teacher standing there alone. The home teacher said, I don't have my companion with me, but I felt it should, I should come tonight anyway. I didn't know you'd be entertaining company. President Hinckley graciously invited the home teacher to come on in and sit down and instruct three apostles and their wives <laughs> concerning our duty as members. With a bit of trepidation, the home teacher did his best. President Hinckley thanked him for coming, after which the home teacher made a prompt retreat. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln offered the wise counsel which surely applies to home teaching. If you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. President Ezra Taft Benson urged, Above all, be a genuine friend to the individuals and families you teach. And as the Savior declared to us, I will call you friends, for you are my friends. A friend makes more than a dutiful visit each month. A friend is more concerned about helping people than getting credit. A friend cares. A friend loves. A friend listens. And a friend reaches out. Some who are here will remember the story President Romney once told us about the so-called home teacher who went to the Romney home on a cold night. He kept his hat in his hand and shifted nervously when invited to sit down and give his message. He replied, Well, I'll tell you, Brother Romney, it's cold outside, and I left my car engine running so it wouldn't stop. I just came by so I could tell the bishop I made my calls. Brother Romney, after relating this experience, in a meeting of priesthood holders, then said, We can do better than that, brethren, much better. Home teaching answers many prayers and permits us to see the occurrence of living miracles. Let me illustrate using situations with which 
I've been intimately acquainted in years past, as well as in the present period of time. The proprietor of Dick's Cafe in St. George, Utah, is such an example. Dick Hammer came to Utah during the Depression years with the CCC. During that period, he met and married a Latter-day Saint young woman. He opened his cafe, which became a popular meeting spot. Home teacher to the Hammer family was Willard Millen. Since I knew Dick Hammer and printed his menus, I would ask my friend Brother Millen when I visited St. George, how's our friend Dick Hammer coming? The reply would generally be, slow. The years passed by, and just a year or two ago, Willard said to me, Brother Monson, Dick Hammer is converted and is going to be baptized. He is in his 90th year, and we have been friends all our adult lives. His decision warms my heart. I've been his home teacher for many, many years, perhaps 15 and then a little break, then another 15. Brother Hammer was indeed baptized and a year later entered that beautiful St. George Temple and there received his endowment and sealing blessings. I asked Willard Millen, did you ever become discouraged teaching for such a long time? He replied, no, it was worth the effort. I'm a happy man. Perseverance. Some years ago, before my leaving to become president of the Canadian Mission, headquartered in Toronto, Ontario, I had developed a friendship with a man by the name of Shelley, who lived in the ward but did not embrace the gospel, irrespective of the fact that his wife and children had done so. As I served as a mission president, had I been asked to name anyone I knew, most likely not to become a member of the Church, I believe I would have thought of Shelley, and I won't tell you why. After I was called to the Twelve, I received a telephone call from Shelley. Here's what he said. Bishop, will you seal my wife, my family, and me in the Salt Lake Temple? I answered hesitantly, but Shelley, you first have to become a member of the Church and be baptized. He laughed and responded, Oh, I took care of that while you were in Canada. My home teacher was the school crossing guard, and every weekday, as he and I would visit at the crossing, we would discuss the gospel. I have the privilege to see this miracle with my own eyes and feel the joy with my heart and my soul. The ceilings were performed. A family was united. Shelley died not long after this period, but not before he publicly thanked his home teachers for their faithful service. Elder Marky Peterson, when discussing activation of members, would frequently declare, and I quote, The challenge we have is one of lack of conversion. We, the priesthood of God—these are my words—cannot afford to leave families in a cocoon. 
isolated from the body of the Church. Long years ago, Joseph Lyon of Salt Lake City shared with me the lesson of a lecture which a minister from another faith observed as he spoke to the Associated Credit Man of Salt Lake. The minister boldly proclaimed, Mormonism is the greatest philosophy in the world today. The biggest test for the Mormon Church will come with the advent of television and radio, which tend to keep people away from the Church. He then proceeded to relate what later became known as the Hot Coals story. He described a warm fireplace where the pieces of wood had burned brightly with the embers still glowing and giving off heat. He then observed that by taking in hand brass tongs, he could remove one of the hot embers and hold it apart. That ember would then slowly pale in light and turn black. No longer would it glow. No longer would it warm. He then pointed out that by returning the black, cold ember to the bed of living coals, the dark ember would begin to glow and brighten and warm. He concluded, People are somewhat like the coals of a fire. Should they absent themselves from the warmth and spirit of the active Church, they will not contribute to the whole, but in their isolation will be changed. As with the embers removed from the heat of the fire, as they distant themselves from the intensity of the spirit generated by the active membership, they will lose that warmth and spirit. The Reverend closed his comment by observing, People are more important than the embers of a fire. As years come and then go and life's challenges become more difficult, the visits of home teachers to those who have absented themselves from Church activity can be the key which will eventually open the doors to their return. With this thought in mind, can we, brethren, not reach out to those for whom we are responsible and bring them to the table of the Lord to feast on His word and to enjoy the companionship of His Spirit and be no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. President Ezra Taft Benson said that home teaching is priesthood, compassionate service. Not long ago, I received a touching letter from a sister, Maury Farmer, tells of two home teachers and the loving service that they rendered to the Farmer family during a time when the family was experiencing some difficult financial circumstances. At the time the service was provided, the Farmer family were out of town attending a family reunion. I share with you just a brief portion of a letter written to the Farmer family by their home teachers, which the family found taped to their garage door when they returned home. It begins, We hope you had a great family reunion. While you were gone, we and about 50 of our friends had a great party at your house. We want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the years of unselfish service you both have given to us. You have been Christ-like examples of untiring service to others. We can never repay you for that. 
but just thought we'd like to say thanks. Sincerely, your home teachers. I quote a phrase or two from Sister Maury Farmer's letter to me. After reading the note from our home teachers, we entered the house with great anticipation. What we found shocked us so much we were at a loss for words. I stayed up all night crying over the generosity of the people of our ward. Our home teachers has decided, had decided that they would fix our carpet while we were away. They had moved the furniture out into the front yard so the carpet could get stretched and finished. One man in the ward stopped and asked what was going on. He returned later with several hundred dollars worth of paint and said we might as well paint the house. Well, everything's out. Others saw the cars out front and stopped to see what was going on. By week's end, 50 people were busy repairing, painting, cleaning, and sewing. Our friends and fellow ward members had fixed our poorly laid carpet, painted the entire house, repaired holes in the drywall, oiled and varnished our kitchen cabinets, put curtains in the windows, did all the laundry, cleaned every room, had the carpets cleaned, fixed broken door latches, and on and on. The list filled three pages. All of this had been accomplished between Wednesday and our return on Sunday. Everyone we talked to told us with tears in his eyes what a spiritual experience it had been to participate. We have truly been humbled by this experience. And then she prepared and closed the letter, and we'll leave the letter at that point. Now, as we look at our responsibilities of home teachers, I would like to suggest that we look to a man of Galilee, a man called Jesus of Nazareth. When I think of his example, I feel it describes the type of home teacher we should be. There is one teacher whose life overshadows all others. He taught of life and death, of duty and destiny. He lived not to be served but to serve, not to receive but to give, not to save his life but to sacrifice it for others. He described a love more beautiful than lust, a poverty richer than treasure. It was said of this teacher that he taught with authority and not as did the scribes. In today's world, where many men are greedy for gold and for glory and are dominated by the philosophies of men. Remember, this teacher never wrote. Once only he wrote on the sand, and the wind destroyed forever his handwriting. His laws were not inscribed upon stone, but upon human hearts. I speak of the Master Teacher, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior and Redeemer, of all mankind. It was said of him, he went about doing good. With him as our unfailing guide, we shall qualify for his divine help in our home teaching. Lives will be blessed, hearts will be comforted, souls will be saved. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.